Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're concluding our series, The Invisible War, with a message entitled, now get this, The Final Defeat of Satan. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation 20, verse 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Today is my final teaching in this series on spiritual warfare, and today I'm going to chronicle the final and the ultimate defeat of Satan. But I'm also going to do more. You know, we have seen that at every point in both the activity of Satan and of his legions of troops under his command, the demonic world of darkness that God allows them for the present moment to continue on in their activity. And in consequence, the world is awash in spiritual darkness. And we, we might ask, why does God allow that? You know, for one, we've noted that Satan is not an equal to God. Indeed, it seems to me that the archangel Michael is more than capable of handling Satan, although that would be a great conquest. But God himself, well, he needs only to speak the word and the evil one is done. And yet God has chosen not to. So today I hope to shed some light on that question realizing that the ultimate answers may not be available to us until we're on the other side of eternity. Well, biblically, the defeat of Satan occurs in four stages. We note that with the coming of Christ in the inauguration of his kingdom, Jesus displayed authority to drive demons from the land. And also, when Jesus died, Satan already then suffered a great defeat. Well, that defeat happened on two fronts. First, his kingdom, which rules the earth, suffered a massive defeat. Satan could no longer protect his crumbling kingdom. Jesus was raiding it by redeeming men and women and forgiving their sins and transferring them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And even though up to this day, Satan continues to encourage nations to, to make laws to prevent the gospel from flourishing, still he daily loses a great company of his captives to the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean that there were no conversions in the Old Testament, that is, before Christ died. But in the First Testament, conversions were mainly confined to the Jewish people. Yeah, there were Gentile conversions. Think of the prostitute Rahab, the widow Ruth from Moab, Naaman, the Syrian commander, there were others. But we do know that the losses to Satan's kingdom were limited until the coming of Jesus. But then, when Christ died for the sins of the world, suddenly, the gospel goes global, and Satan suffers catastrophic losses. But there's another second matter that also exemplifies Satan's defeat. According to Revelation 12, Satan, who once had access to accuse God's people before the throne, has now been thrown down. He who accuses us now finds that he's barred from the throne room of God. So now the blood of Jesus speaks in our defense, and Satan has lost his ability to accuse us before the throne. Revelation 12, 13 says, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. And so the horrible history of global anti-Semitism is evidence of how Satan despises the Jewish people. And why shouldn't he? I mean, after all, as Paul reminded us in Romans 9, verses 4 and 5, theirs is the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises, and from their race, the Christ was born. So the intense hatred Satan bears against Israel is profound. 
But several verses later, in Revelation 12, 17, we read, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Ah, Satan declared war on Christians. And so even while believers have authority in Jesus' name, not only to win men and women to Christ from every nation and tribe and tongue, and even though believers have authority to cast out demons, the kingdom of the dark one now persecutes believers. So Satan is enraged and has some put to death, and others are subject to strong laws, which make them the subject of slander. And even in the church itself, Satan sets up those on the inside of the church, men and women of evil intent who slander God's kingdom. Want an illustration of that? The great preacher, John Chrysostom, who was winning people to Christ in the city of Constantinople in the fourth century, through his powerful preaching, he was thrown from his pulpit, fired from his ministry position by Queen Eudoxia, who ordered Roman soldiers to march that preacher to his death. This she did, and the dark spirits rejoiced. You want another illustration? Athanasius, the ardent defender of the truth of the Trinity, was thrown out and excommunicated from the empire not once, but many times. Even men who should have known better believed unfounded rumors about this godly man, and Satan cheered. You want another illustration? Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great English preacher in the 1800s, was so despised in what has been called the downgrade controversy, when Spurgeon's own brother even stood against him. After Spurgeon's death, Spurgeon's widow remarked that the ceaseless pressure upon him had resulted in his early death. You know, Satan persecutes, he slanders, and he raises up false teachers. He's enraged by what has happened to his kingdom, and now he seeks to harm the church and discredit faithful and effective ministers of the gospel. And so this is the warfare in which we're now living. It's a great and awful fight, but God sends his angels to watch over his church. I find it fascinating that, you know, in Revelation 2 and 3, when Jesus addresses the seven churches of Asia Minor, and as he does so, he says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, to the angel of the church of Pergamum, and so forth. So I have no doubt There are strong angels who battle for the faithful church, wherever she's found, and who counter the worst that the enemy can do. Well, as I've said, this is the warfare in which the church presently finds herself. It's the great invisible war, angels and demons facing off in the heavenly realms. Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the schemes of the devil and against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness. This is the great invisible war. But this war will end. So let me take you to the book of Revelation because the next stage, that is the second stage of the defeat of Satan, comes at the advent of the great tribulation. So if I understand the book of Revelation rightly, chapters 2 and 3 in the book are the messages to the seven churches. Then from chapters 4 and 5, we see that in spite of the spiritual war that the churches are facing, God is on the throne and his throne room rules over all. God has never relinquished his authority. And then in chapters 6 to 7, it's about the breaking of the seven seals. And this advent describes the present warfare. You know, in many ways, I see Revelation 6 and 7 as a parallel to Jesus' teaching on the Mount of Olives. It's described in Matthew 24. So those chapters are a description of the church in conflict. 
And then comes chapter 8. Seven trumpets are about to be blown, and as they blow, we're catapulted into a new era in which the warfare intensifies to the extreme. You know, traditionally, Christians have called this the Great Tribulation. I've heard others refer to it as Satan's little season. And for a period of time, it seems as if Satan is winning. He's having his way. But wait a minute. It's not Satan who blows the trumpet. It's God Almighty who orders his angels to blow the trumpets, signaling that the sad history of this sinful earth is quickly coming to an end. What happens in the blowing of the trumpets are God's judgments, not Satan's victory. And yet, Satan seems to have great victories during this era. So think of the matter in this fashion. You might remember what God tells Abraham in Genesis 18, verse 20. He says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. So where's the outcry being heard? Well, I have no doubt. It's being heard in the heavenly realms. No doubt the angelic realm who patrols the earth have noticed that the earth has no place that is more wicked than Sodom. And then what happens? Well, there's an outpouring of fire and sulfur from God. Or you might remember why God told Abraham that he would not inherit Canaan immediately. Genesis 15 verse 16 says, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That is to say, until the measure of their sins reaches an apex, a boiling point, I will not overthrow them. I find the same truth in the destruction of Jerusalem. The prophets warn God's people over and over again of their sin, but they will not repent. But then after a long period of time comes a word to the prophet Jeremiah, just before Jerusalem is about to be overthrown. God says to Jeremiah, and here I'm quoting Jeremiah 11:14. 14, therefore do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf, for I will not listen when they call to me in the time of trouble. And then when Jeremiah complains, God says, it's going to happen. Nothing can stop it now. Judgment is about to come. Well, we need to learn more and understand how this relates to the very last of days. The Back to the Bible Canada Israel experience is a trip like no other. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. A supporter who attended our most recent trip said, listening to Pastor John teach the Bible while looking and breathing the air where the events he speaks about may have actually happened puts doubts of the authenticity of the Bible to rest. So make plans to join an intimate group of spiritual pilgrims this coming spring from April 16th to the 24th, 2023, and consider the optional Jordan extension from April 24th to the 29th. Join us in the Holy Land with on-location teaching from Dr. John Newfeld and wonderful evenings of entertainment with Laugh Again's Phil Calloway and very special musical guest, Amanda Stott. For more information, the trip itinerary or registration forms, call us at one 800 663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca There comes a time in the sad history of human rebellion against its maker that the time for repentance is past. In the end times, during the Great Tribulation, that will be the case for the majority on earth. 
God will, during this time, remove restraints, and he will allow Satan to have his little season. And in those days, Satan, in rage, will raise up his world leader, the Antichrist, the man who opposes the kingdom of God in every way. The Great Tribulation will allow Satan to have freedom he doesn't presently have. You know, in our day, his activities, even though they seem abundant, are limited. God has a restraining force in place that prevents Satan from putting together a super society, something he's always desired. Satan, as strange as this is to some ears, hates the division of the nations. Satan deeply desires a one-world government, and if he achieves that, all he then desires is to control the leadership of that government. We might think of despots in the past, great, dark, and evil leaders who have you know, wantonly killed everyone who got in their way. Nations in which prison camps are full of hapless victims and where the church of the Savior is driven to near extinction. But these evil nations, although the present earth has plenty of them, these nations find their power thwarted by other nations. Evil is continually in check. God uses his angels to guard against such a rise of worldwide unrestrained darkness. But the day will come when such restraints are taken out of the way. Indeed, it gets worse. Look at Revelation 9, 2 and 3. He, that is an angel from God, opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. So throughout this series, we have seen that the demons were cast from heaven and have occupied a place among the dead in the underworld. Nevertheless, they seem to have some degree of freedom to torture the earth with their presence. Yet this power is constantly being limited. But when God removes all restraint, well, he opens the door to the darkest place and allows for a massive increase in demonic activity such as this world has never seen. Here we're reminded of Luther's words. Satan is the unwilling servant of God. Time of judgment has come. It's darkness and evil that this world wants. Well, here it is in full measure. And what happens during this time is the subject of a great portion of the book of Revelation. But my eyes are taken up in Revelation 13:5 to 7. It describes the activities of the human ruler of the world, the Antichrist. So the Bible says here, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was also allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. I'm horrified over the declaration that the Antichrist was allowed to conquer the saints. I take that to mean that the church is devastated. All the institutional structures now lie in ruins. Yeah, there's still godly people, but the church as an organization, I think, is no more. The Antichrist will be wildly successful in persecuting and killing and destroying the saints. Now to verses 7b to 8. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, so much more could be said. But the first, perhaps and most obvious, is that the authority of the beast will then be universal. He builds a global empire and causes the world to submit to him. And as fascinating as that is, I want you to pay attention to an important detail. 
The beast causes the entire world to worship him with one exception, the elect. Those chosen by God will not. I'm reminded of Jesus' words recorded in John 10, 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. At the very heart of this matter is a glorious truth, sometimes called the perseverance of the elect. One of the marks of those whom the Father has chosen from eternity past is they persevere. They will not follow the beast. Now listen to Jesus' words on this matter. Matthew 24, 22 says, If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And then what happens next? Well, Jesus returns. And that's the third stage in Satan's defeat. So we follow the sequence of events described to us in the beginning of Revelation 20. I'm reading verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Now, the bottomless pit is the same location that has been described before. Back in chapter 9, we saw an angel who had been given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. The angel then opened the pit and smoke came out of it like the smoke of a great furnace. And then out of that horrible place come, you know, demonic locusts who swarm the earth and, and bring great suffering. Now, going ahead to chapter 11, verse 6, we're told that the beast or the Antichrist rises out of the bottomless pit. That is to say, his power and his kingdom and his ability to rule the nation come from that very place. So what's the bottomless pit? The Greek word that's used there is the word abyss. Paul uses the same word in Romans 10, verse 7, when he says, who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. So the abyss is the place of the dead. It is the underworld, verses 2 and 3. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And I, for my part, find no reason to doubt a thousand-year period of time in which this earth will be demon-free. Christ will rule from Jerusalem, and the only rebellion against his reign will result from a wicked human heart and not from demon oppression. A world where governments are being motivated by Satan will end. The world of demon possession will end. A world where Satan can visit people with either sickness or despair or spread his slanderous lies will be a period that the human race will remember no doubt in our history books, it will be described for us. But for 1,000 years, the invisible war will come to an end. But of course, in the boundless wisdom of God, God once more releases the demons from the place of the dead. And when he does so, he exposes this truth. The unredeemed, the unrepentant, love the demonic. That indeed is what the permission given to demons was all about in the first place. It was to reveal what was truly in the heart of those who will not come to the Lord and live. But the return of the demons will be short-lived. No more endless ages in which the earth is subjected to their torment. The day of judgment is at hand. And with judgment comes final judgment, the judgment which is eternal. Revelation 20 verse 10 says, And the devil who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
that is, the entire demonic horde, along with their leader, Satan himself, will be judged and sentenced and then removed from the place of the dead. Indeed, the place of the dead will be forever sealed and be no more. There is a place far more dreadful than the land of gloom and sorrow and the land of darkness. This place is the place of endless burning from which there will never be escape. And for this reason, that the future of the demonic is forever sealed, I make my appeal. Even though it cost you everything on this earth, yet to ally oneself with Satan and his lords of darkness is utterly catastrophic. Come out from them, says the Lord. Now today is the day of salvation. Here is the voice of a savior, the one who both loves you and gave himself up on the cross for you. Come to Jesus and be saved. Confess your sins and entrust your life into his hands. You'll find rest for your soul and you will find an eternal kingdom of light and joy that will never pass away. And you will find a promise that you will forever be in the presence of the one true God. This is the offer of salvation. Come to Jesus and live. Simply pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I know that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, and I know that you died on the cross for my sins. Today, I surrender my life into your hands. Come, take my life. I am yours. Amen. John, I think I've said it again, but I think this is a timely series. I think it's a series people need to hear, uh, this invisible war that's going on. But I have to say, you know, you can't conclude a series like this or even a message like this without proclaiming the victory of Christ. Yeah. Oh, oh, so true. Um, we need to, uh, in the darkness, you know, Paul says this present darkness. So we know this is where we labor, but we know this is not the end of the matter. Uh, the end will come. Christ will reign supreme. Whatever Satan does as he rages against God's people today is done, A, for a period of time and no more, bounded by God and only at the permission of God. So God continues to be on the throne and directs all things according to his will. So uh, let's rejoice. Let's not despair. Let's, you know, let's uh, uh, fully engage in the work of the gospel. Uh, let's love Jesus more. Let's serve him more. We know the outcome of all things. So you're going through a hard time. You're feeling the darkness of the present hour. My brother, my dear sister, take heart. Christ has overcome this world. Thanks so much, Sean, and thanks for joining us in this series. And remember to join us again next week, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. On November 14th, Dr. Neufeld will begin a new series that you won't want to miss, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion. It's a 20-message series on Matthew 21 to 25. There's a lot to unpack in these five chapters, and Dr. John's biblical expertise will shed light on these passages to help you understand them in a new and deeper way. This series begins with an overview of the qualities that are unique about the Gospel of Matthew and continues with a deep dive into the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life where he will fulfill the mission he'd been sent by the Father to accomplish. So mark your calendars for November 14th and check out this series on your local radio station, your preferred podcast platform, or at backtothebible.ca. 
And for more information, just call us at 1-800-663-2425.